The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hey there, John. How you doing, my man? Hey, Glenn. It's Glenn Lowry here. This is The Glenn Show, uh, uh, Substack.com and YouTube. I'm with John McWhorter of Columbia University and The New York Times. I'm at Brown University as a professor, and I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City. I'm proud to say that the Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show, and I very much appreciate their sponsorship, just as I and I'm sure I speak for John when I say this, uh, very much appreciate you people who have subscribed to glennlowry.substack. Anyway, we're here every other week. We have conversation about this and that, uh, monthly Q&A, and uh, subscribers to glennlowry.substack get to submit questions for us to consider on a monthly basis for the Q&A. So uh, welcome back, John. It seems like only yesterday that we were talking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it often does, but yes, happy to be here. And I took a look uh, in preparation for this conversation. I said, what has John been up to lately? So I said, let me go. I haven't been following you on a regularly regular basis. I get the emails when your columns are announced, but I don't always read the columns. I apologize. We all have too much to read. Yeah. And I find, you know, I find this uh, wonderful portfolio of, you know, 1,200 words, or how many words you're writing every time you take a crack at something on one after another, after another definition, you're writing about guns, you're writing about humor, you're writing about identity, uh, you're writing about music, you, you know, I mean, and it's a different thing. Every, and how can you be an expert on all these things? I said, my God, uh, is there anybody out there? Okay, this is me tooting your horn. I, you can respond as you see fit. <laughs> with with a comparable depth and range of interest and uh, ability to produce on a weekly basis. You're not writing the same column every week, my brother. I mean, I really respect that. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. I, I appreciate that. And you know, I'm not, I'm well aware I'm not an expert on everything, including some of the things that I write there. But yeah, I try to share pretty much everything that I am. There's a chair I sit in and I think, what am I thinking about this week? And will that make a column? And usually it can. And I just figure, why not just put it put it all out there? And um, yeah, I think um, in, in some ways, many people would like it better if what I wrote about was, you know, anti-racism, um, either for it or against it. That's, I think that's considered the, the proper thing to do. But I just... There's more. There's more than that. And so I think actually I'm beginning to annoy some people, I can tell, because ever since 2020 and ever since I wrote Woke Racism, I can see there's a certain kind of very well-intentioned person out there who thinks that the reason I wrote Woke Racism was to tell the world that I wanted to talk and write about anti-wokeness until I dropped it. That that's just I want to talk about freedom of speech 
and you know wokeness and DEI. You know, there are people writing me asking me for counsel about their DEI programs. You know, as if I would, yeah. as if I would know. And no, that's not it. I'm a, I am somebody who is just kind of looking around, and there's a lot of stuff I like, and I hope other people like it. And so, if you can see that that's what that column is, then thank you because that's that's what it is. It's just me sharing what I find interesting. Stands out very clearly in my mind. Uh, you are not in the print edition of the New York Times. I gather you are uh, sometimes solely. You are sometimes in the print edition. Uh, yeah. Uh, the the committees out there that acknowledge excellence in journalism, be alert. John McWhorter is in the house. <laughs> he deserves your attention. Okay, yeah, enough, a, of that, enough, of nice that, enough of that. Enough of that. Enough of that. Notion, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I got into trouble, John, I'm going to have to confess this and I'm not implicating you in anything here. Everybody, this is me, not John, but I'm talking to John right now. So I had Norman Finkelstein on the program. You must've seen the episode. I think you mentioned to me that you saw it. So we talked about his book. I'll burn that bridge when I come to it. Uh, and then it has a subtitle, but it's basically a send up. It's a, it's an, a very intense critique of, you know, anti woke anti racism, if you can call it that, of uh, the Ibram X. Kendi's and the uh, Robin DiAngelo's and people of the world that we have, you and I have criticized here ourselves. And, and uh, Finkelstein is very interesting on that front. But Finkelstein is a Jewish American political scientist who is notorious and infamous for his anti-Zionist, pro-Palestinian sympathies and writings. Books like The Holocaust Industry, which uh, claims that the Holocaust is oversold as a tragic tragedy of uh, Jewish and human history as a way of generating sympathetic cover for the otherwise unacceptable policies of the state of Israel. And I will say no more here than that about Norman Finkelstein's views on Israel. Because in introducing him, I allowed him, I don't know, 10 minutes in a two hour show. I don't usually go that long, but we went that long because, you know, when he got to talking about Barack Obama, it started getting really interesting. <laughs> But his book, his book is not about Israel-Palestine. His book is about uh, anti-racism, and his book is a serious book. So we talk about it. But we at the beginning, I said, who is he? So I've got his books there. And so, you know, he ends up expositing his view about uh, apartheid in uh, Palestine, Israeli. You know, he made the he, he went there. I tried to push back a little bit, but I didn't push back as much as everybody who has written me scores of people who have written me. Uh, how could you have him on? How could you allow those stuff to be said? How could you, don't you now require to have somebody else on to rebut the... Because of the seven, Holocaust part or the Palestine part? Uh, because of mostly of the Palestine part. He's a, he is, by many accounts, a so-called self-hating Jew. He's a Jewish gentleman who has betrayed his people. He has sympathy for Hezbollah and for Hamas. Uh, that are killing Jewish children with their missiles and their terrorism. Uh, he, he uh, you know, is an anti-Zionist and, uh, you know, he's not a, a credible person uh, because of those views. And I, I give him a platform. And so in, a, in effect, indirectly, I endorse those views. Not only do I give him a platform, but in introducing him, I allow him to repeat these noxious views. And not only do I allow the repetition, 
but I don't rebut it. I don't rebut it because I can't rebut it because I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable on the subject, which was not the subject that I had him here to talk about, but it is a subject about which he has had a, a lot to say. Uh, so, so there, so, I mean, I've gotten a letter from people who say, do you think Israel is an apartheid state? I want to say here unequivocally, uh, and without any hesitation, no, Zionism is not racism. Zionism is Zionism, a nationalist movement of Jewish people for aspiring to their own state, perfectly respectable historical movement. It is not uh, Afrikaners at the southern tip of the African continent holding dominion over the varied African peoples uh, who were in their midst. It is not. I don't think it is at all. Um, and, uh, you know, like, like sentiments, it, it, I, I am testifying here in part because of something that you and I said that we want to talk about, which is the problem of self-censorship and the need to avoid having people think badly of you because of things that you're prepared to say, and therefore the necessity of managing one's self-presentation, managing one's image in the minds of others by avoiding certain kinds of things, by virtue signaling. Nothing wrong with virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is a necessity of social life. How, how will you know who the good guys are unless they wear white hats? I mean, in, unless they can communicate the signals of solidarity with the agreed upon norms. There's nothing wrong with that uh, within limits and in its place. It's not a substitute for rigorous scientific argument, but it's a necessity for commodious social interactions. So I want a virtue signal here. I am not an enemy of the Jewish people or of the state of Israel. Are there arguments? Yes, there are arguments. Do I have views about, you know, this or that? Yeah, I have views about this or that. Do I feel the need to recite them here and now as a loyalty test? No, I do not. But I, I am mindful of the intensity of some people's feelings about this because of the volume of the, of the correspondence uh, that, I've, that I've gotten. So thank you, John, for allowing me to take a moment uh, to address that issue. Uh, sensitive stuff. I guess I can say this as somebody who has been described often as a highly Jewish adjacent person. Very, very Jewish adjacent person. I, <laughs> I know Jewish people of all political stripes. I wasn't aware that views like Finkelstein's were so utterly out of court, so utterly dismissible by incontestable fact that they qualified as the kind of thing which to even waste time. Now, that's I messed up my sentence because I'm a little underslept. Such incontestable fact that to even bring them into discussion qualifies as a waste of time and maybe even a kind of immorality because we have better things to do. Because there are such things, you know, somebody arguing for slavery, et cetera. I didn't know that his views were now classified as the sort of thing that reasonable people will consider inapplicable to our value of free speech. I didn't know that. I have watched people having that kind of argument, including at my university, right out on the plaza, including at other universities for decades now. And I didn't know that it was that settled. I didn't know that it's 
immoral to give Finkelstein a platform. And the way I tend to think of it is that, you know, what it's it gets back to this business of you don't want to seem like the aging person who's talking about how it was better back then. I think of <laughs> back then as 10 minutes ago. I still have clothes I was wearing in college that I don't fit into, but I don't think any time has passed. But in the 80s, I remember when I was at Rutgers in particular, there was this frankly, idiot fundamentalist preacher named, I think, Jeb Smart, and who would come to campus and stand out in the middle and preach all of this backwards Bible-thumping nonsense to me, including explicitly anti-gay rhetoric, et cetera, et cetera. And he had this wife who was standing next to him, Sister Sarah or something. And, you know, once every six months, this, this Reverend Smart would come and spout all of this shit. And it was kind of a sport— to surround him and to heckle him and to read other passages from the Bible. At the time, it was a very fresh argument that there was nothing wrong with being gay and kids from the gay alliance would come and, you know, argue things, etc. And honestly, it was an education. I mean, it was, it was a bit of a show, but you learned a lot standing there watching the rebuttal. Why is it that if Finkelstein comes and talks on your show, it can't be that people write in the comments what they think of as the real truth is, and that those of us standing on the sidelines can just decide. And if Finkelstein is so utterly wrong, if there are such incontestable facts about the history here, and I'm agnostic there, I haven't studied it carefully, I've, I've read one of his books, the one everybody else has read, and then I've read a couple other others that are against him. If it's that incontestable, then the truth will out, maybe not next week, but isn't that the process? I just don't see where people have a leg to stand on in saying that you shouldn't have harbored him. Now, the part about the Holocaust, I think that's been pretty much taken care of by Deborah Lipstadt. I mean, you, there's, you can just read her work. Any kind of Holocaust denialism, I think, has been pretty much taken care of. But then you, you just go to it. You don't say, therefore, you can't say it. You refer people to the arguments that put the argument into the ground, right? I don't quite understand here. Well, okay, I, I don't understand it either. Um, I, I think the um, self-hating Jew, betrayal of his people, um, solidarity with and sympathy for the enemies of the Jewish people, I think that's the offense. I, I think there's a contest over narrative. So uh, we've just uh, it, uh, acknowledged the 75th anniversary of the founding of the state of Israel. And, you know, the question of the dispossession of the Palestinians and the, the Nakba, you know, the, the uh, you know, driving people out of their villages and all of this. Uh, did they leave or were they driven out? And all of the different so-called massacres and incidents that happened in the process of the war of independence that established the state of Israel. And then how you tell that story and the historians are arguing about it. Uh, I once read a book by a guy called uh, Ilyan Pape, uh, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. He was a his. Israeli, he is, I assume, an Israeli historian. That one really got my, around for a while, yeah. My understanding is that he no longer uh, does his scholarship in Israel. I think he's an expatriate now living in Scandinavia, something like that. Mm. Um, uh, I think he was at Haifa, I can't remember for sure now, at the university. But in any case, 
you know, he, he says it was an ethnic cleansing and he claims that there was a plan, plan Dalit. You know, I mean, anyway, let me not go down into the weeds on this. I'm just saying. In the same way that you could have a fierce argument about historiography, the historical interpretation of slavery mm-hmm. and emancipation and whatnot, fierce argument about whether or not the Civil War was fought to free the slaves, what Lincoln was trying to do, what, you know, uh, 600,000 dead, that was, a, you know, every drop of blood drawn by the lash ended up being returned with a drop drawn by the sword, as Lincoln put it, kind of thing. Like, and you could have a fierce, fierce argument. Are the, consider this proposition that the importation of the Africans, as horrific as that actually was, has led to a circumstance where their descendants are the richest and most powerful people of African descent on the planet. I'm talking about us. Black Americans, by far uh, the most prosperous and influential large population of African descent on the planet, quid pro quo, that was the benefit from the, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that. I want to be clear. That's not my argument. I'm saying an argument like that would be infuriating to a lot of people. A Black person who went around trumpeting such an argument would be persona non grata everywhere in Black America. There'd be no church that he could go or she and stand up in. There's no civil rights organization. There's no black political representative that's going to be photographed with them. They go around saying black people have already been paid because their descendants, the African slaves' descendants, are rich and powerful, relatively speaking. Look at the rest of Africa. No one would make that argument. I'm not making it. Let me say it again. I'm illustrating my point by enunciating the structure of an argument which would be unacceptable to make. So I I think um, I think Norman Finkelstein is that guy uh, for a lot of Jewish Americans, a lot of Jewish people. He's the guy, our guy, our son, who has betrayed his people by adopting an intellectual posture hostile to the existential imperatives for our people of our time and the maintenance and the sustaining of the state of Israel, the Zionist project. Uh, is regarded uh, by many as just that, an existential imperative. That's where I think the ferocity of it comes from. Sure, yeah, but I think all people who are being feroce in that way need to (laughs) think more about what they're really doing and whether the ferocity is necessary or constructive. And so... I don't know. It's one of those things. When um, I first had an opinion that was against the grain about whether or not black English and all of its glory should be used as a teaching tool, whether that was why black kids had trouble in school. Um, I'm young. I like an argument. I thought I was right. So I came out with my, you know, rhetoric and I was enjoying, you know, telling people where they were wrong. And my dissertation advisor, um, John Rickford, gave me the wisdom, and it was wisdom. He said, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. Now, sometimes you have to beware those aphorisms that rhyme or have that assonance or that (laughs) balance, because, you know, is that, shouldn't they care what you know? How come they have to know that you care? But the truth is that that's true. It maybe isn't always fair, but they don't care what your facts and your logic are if you don't seem to care about them. And I took that to heart, Because I thought, why do I want to run around making all these points? Why is it like being on a debate team? The idea is you're trying to seek the good, right? 
Because if you're not trying to seek the good, go go get a hobby. And I knew that I was trying to seek the good. Now, with Finkelstein, the question some people might ask is, is he seeking the good of Jewish people? And if you're saying that, you know, Hezbollah, et cetera, have a point, and I'm sure he's not saying that he cheers at what they do, but if you're saying they have a point, he can put himself in their shoes. I wonder if his message comes off as anti-Semitic because he might seem to have more fellow feeling with them than with Jewish people. What's the good news about being Jewish? What would be better if things had gone his way? I don't know if he stresses that enough. And maybe in the grand scheme of things, he could. There's an aspect of him. And I enjoy watching it because it's my essence. It's what <laughs> I really am. I like an argument. Yeah, he really likes the fight. <laughs> he likes the fight and I like That's watching what... him. But that's yeah. not most human beings. And he rubs people the wrong way, partly because of that happy warrior thing. It's what you thought of me 20 years ago. And you even used the term happy warrior. And you were right. That's it's annoying. You know, that you should that's not why you should be out there fighting. You should be out there fighting because you're seeking the good for people. Maybe people think he's not. And I'm not saying that he isn't, but there's a manner there, you know. Every fighter, every warrior has a has a story. You know, there's going to be some deep psychological substratum there. You know, they're not just fighting for civil rights. They're not just fighting for communist victory or they're not just fighting for anti-racism or for anti-anti-racism. They're fighting to work out stuff from their childhood. They're fighting in order to feel secure within their own person. They're fighting for their personal ambitions uh, they, they're fighting against whatever the demons are that are lurking. Uh, I know this because having just completed my memoir, <laughs> I have had to plumb the depths of my own soul and ask myself, why? Why was I so angry? Why, why was I so fiercely determined to, you know, make a point and realize that the answers are not always noble? <laughs> The answers are not always because I had the intellectual acuity to see the depth of the problem and I needed to save the world by getting the right answer. Sometimes the answer is because I like the way it made me feel. <laughs> I like the response I was getting from these audiences when they would, you know, he praise upon me for being, you know, whatever. Uh, or because uh, I had doubts about my ability to do my day job. You know, my day job is writing theoretical papers in economics and getting them in the top journal. And when the Wall Street Journal and not the Journal of Political Economy is calling and wanting your commentary or your 800 word op-ed piece or when the people that are going to give you 10 or 15 grand, and this is 1990, to go and give a lecture are calling and saying, we want to hear from you. You know, that gives me something to do. That that gives me a way of getting gratification yeah. professionally, even though what I really should be doing is in my study with my pen and my pad, slogging away at the hardest of the hard problems and maybe succeeding and maybe not. You know, that's it. yeah, we all have some of it. Part of that kind of smaller aspect that has always motivated me, it's only part of it is me as the nerdy black kid being told that I was inauthentic and that there's something wrong with me because of being a nerd. I did not like it. It did not make me sad. It made me angry. And there's a part of me, even now at 57, where what it is, 
is don't say that that doesn't make me black. I will openly admit that that's part of it. It's stuff that oh, I... Oh, yeah. And it's not, it's not like I haven't worked it out. The way I work it out is doing this. It works. It works just fine. I don't need any therapy about it. But it's partly that. But then it's also... I've never mentioned this before, but it's also... I can honestly say that some of it is just my sense of what's good for people, which maybe it's kind of condescending, but... One thing that helped to turn me, and I had no idea that it was a seed planted long before Rodney King, which was officially when I realized I'm not crazy and I'm going to start saying something. It was this picture in Time magazine that I've never been able to find since. My father started subscribing to it for some reason when I was about 15. And I would have seen this when I was around 15 or 16. It was an article about workfare, as they used to call it, taking welfare recipients and giving them job training. And I was just yeah. reading this as a teenager, and nobody had talked about this in the house, but they had a picture of a a, a black woman. Yeah, she's kind of large, and, and she's smiling, and they've gotten her a job, and that's the picture. I was so warmed by the picture and the article. I thought, I like this. Like, people are on welfare because life hasn't gone well, but the program is supposed to then teach people how to get back into the, the workforce. And I thought, that's good. And uh -oh. I and I gradually realized that, that I'm not supposed to think that's good. Uh -oh. <laughs> I was so touched by that. And that's a little bit of my thing because I think of it as good. I thought that yeah. woman looks happy. That's the way welfare should work. And I have learned since that that's, I'm, I'm punitive, I'm Republican, et cetera. But no, it was about the good of the race. It wasn't a problem of mine. I just thought they're helping her. You know what I mean? Like, then I don't know why I felt that way at 16, but I guess there was a quote unquote conservative in me. I didn't know it was conservative. I just was happy for that woman. So, yeah, workfare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there are workfares back. Work requirements were one of the issues in the negotiation between the White House and the Republicans the in Congress. That's right. Yeah, the debt yeah. ceiling negotiation. Here we are 40 and years later or whatever, but yeah. I was going to say, though, that uh, they don't care what you know until they know what you care has a certain, I think, inexorable logic in it, which is, okay, so why should I defer? You're going to tell me something that I otherwise didn't know was true, and I'm supposed to take it as at face value and accept it as true. Why should I do that? Well... You might be an expert. You might know more than me. And therefore, I should take seriously what you say because that's the way I learn. On the other hand, precisely because you might know more than me, I might not be able to detect your effort to manipulate me by telling me something that's not true, but that I can't tell is not true. Therefore, I have to ask myself, what is your incentive to manipulate me? Well, manipulation means getting me to do something that I otherwise wouldn't do. So you have to have preferences that are different from mine in order to want to manipulate me. In other words, you would just give me the information and let me do what I wanted to do if you and I agreed. But if we disagreed, you would give me information to induce me to do something that which if I really knew what was going on, I wouldn't want to do. That's the manipulation. So we don't want to be we don't want to be manipulated. Bottom line is none of us does. Nobody wants to be fooled in that kind of a situation. Hence, when someone's telling me something, a fact that I cannot immediately verify that they're asking me to take for granted in the context of an argument, I ask myself, well, 
where are they coming from? What, what's their motivation? Where are their incentives? What are their beliefs? What are their, what's their value frame? If it's similar to mine, then I'm prepared to trust them. But if it's distinct from mine and perhaps even in opposition to mine, then I am going to discount what they tell me and not take it seriously. So I care what they know when I know what they care. Yeah. That, that makes, that's economist sense. But yes, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. And it's, it, it's part of why that has to be kept in mind. I've seen it in my own field. When you're only the jolly warrior, people's, people turn off. And maybe that, that makes sense. And so it's part of, maybe it's a kind of maturity to understand that you're supposed to have some sort of caring. But it's almost inevitable that you're also going to have something more personal, more contingent that motivates you. It's part of figuring out why somebody does what they do. It's interesting with, um, I'm just thinking out loud now. That's, that's it. That's it. I just read the new um, Martin Luther King biography by Jonathan Eig, oh. and he's, um, he's good. You know, to be honest, you know, everybody's talking about how good the book is, and it's very good. He did one of Muhammad Ali about five years ago that was better. I mean, I found it. I learned oh. more. I found Muhammad Ali interesting for the first time. That one was really something. The King biography is fine, but I must admit, there was something missing for me, and it wasn't I. It was about King, and I'm not about to take King's name in vain. But I found it very hard to figure out why him. Like, you learn about his early life, and then he does— I mean, why he became the man that he yeah, did? Yeah, and, uh-huh. and he does these magnificent things, and there's a part of him. And I mean, maybe we would have learned more if he had gotten older. I have a hard time getting from the kid to the great Martin Luther King. And I, I was thinking, I read all of that book and came away feeling a little, something's missing. That, yeah. What is that kernel of little something in little Martin Luther King that created that man? And you can't tell. You, it's hard to see. And, and I nails it in this most recent book? He does not nail it because I don't uh-huh. think anybody knows. It's, it's, uh-huh. it's just interesting. There's only one thing, which is that when he was accused of doing something wrong as a kid, a couple of times he jumped out of a second floor window and hurt himself hitting the ground. He did that twice. That's different. Like that kind of that martyrish thing. But then again, why? It's it's hard to do a psychobiography of him and you can't interview him, of course. That's just interesting. You know, it is interesting. I mean, it occurs to me that we have to guard in retrospect against the temptation to interpret every little thing like this incidents of jumping out of the window overinterpreted and give it a significance, which in the context of a complicated life about which we would know very little at the end of the day, certainly the early life, uh, it might get more significance than it's due. I always thought, I mean, correct me if this is uh, contrary to your impression, that he was a more or less ordinary gentleman. He wasn't an especially distinguished student when he was in the theology program at Boston Mm -hmm. University. even been accused of plagiarism. Uh, I, I actually think that that's documented. It is, yeah. Um, and uh, by uh, this guy, Clay Carson, isn't he the historian at Clay Stanford? Clay Carson at Stanford, specialist. Yeah. And he was black, so you know, there was... Yeah, black historian, the, yeah. yeah. And you have to say black, see, because if you know, we don't care what you know unless that's we know right. what you care. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that he was pastor in this church and he was in this situation, you know, 
uh, in Montgomery, isn't it, uh, where the bus boycott breaks mm-hmm. out? And I mean, he becomes just by a sequence of happenstance, the person who's the front person who's up in the front giving the speech. Now, he grows in the role exactly. and stuff starts coming in and and events have their own logic. You know, the Freedom Riders and the sit ins and, the, you know, I mean, and, and the next thing you Tell know. Me. Mm-hmm. He's meeting with presidents and, you know, the Nobel, of course, the Nobel coronation. But that comes relatively late. That's like 1964, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's 57, 58, 59 when, you know, he's really becoming. And uh, uh, that it just was just one of those things and lightning struck, you know, and, and he rose to the UK and he certainly had these oratorical gifts. That's got to be any exploration huh. of King has got to get into the root of that. That kind of preacherly mastery of the language and of metaphor, the powerful and the improvisational character of it. It's really He was a very good singer in that way. He was gifted at that. But then for a lot of time, he's wondering, why me? As you can as you can imagine, like I wasn't ready for this. And then he grows into the role. And it's it's an amazing story in a way. I, I, I if he had lived longer, there could have been interviews where you got more of a sense of it. But yeah, there's a time when, I don't know if we're allowed to use the word. I'm going to use it. You guys can bleep me if you want to, but I think we go way too far on this, and we're both black. Adam Clayton Powell, who's black himself, sees Martin Luther King coming up, because Adam Clayton Powell was already a star in the late 50s, and here's Martin Luther King. And what Adam Clayton Powell thought of him, this is not in the eye book, I don't think. He says, who's this nigger preacher? That's what Adam, (laughs) who was very light-skinned, Adam Clayton Powell. That's all he seemed like. To somebody like Powell at first. And next thing you know, Adam Clayton Powell is a footnote and Martin Luther King is, is God, justifiably. It's just interesting how people grow. It's just, yeah. It's really important to get life insurance. If you have a family like I do, you know how much your loved ones depend upon you. In a worst case scenario, you wouldn't want to have to worry about them having enough money. A good life insurance plan can give you peace of mind that if something were to happen to you, your family will have a safety net to cover mortgage payments and college costs and other expenses so that they can get back on their feet and focus on what's most important. Perhaps you already have coverage through work. You should know that employer-sponsored life insurance may not offer enough protection for your family, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. I can tell you from personal experience as a man in his 70s who remarried after his former wife passed away to a younger woman, that it's super satisfying to check life insurance off of my to-do list. And getting covered can be even more satisfying when you use Policy Genius. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $25 a month for as much as a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. 
That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. Policy Genius is for parents, for caregivers, and anyone else who has people who depend upon them. They simplify the process of getting life insurance so that you can protect the people you love. There are no added fees and your personal details are private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and to see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. This is an amazing novel by Charles Johnson, who's the Middle Passage. He got a National Book Award for that great novel, Middle Passage. But this novel called Dreamer. Dreamer is a is a imagining that King was not killed in Memphis in 1968, that there was a double standing in for King because they knew that people were trying to kill him. And so he had a double. Kind of wonder why he went out onto the porch. Yeah. Exactly. And then and then this guy gets killed and everybody thinks it's King and it's the double who actually gets killed. And King uses the opportunity to basically disappear from this life, from this great, amazing, you know, privilege of life. But also this albatross of a burden of a boulder on my back that I'm tired of carrying it uphill life. Yeah. And he disappears into, you know, a small town somewhere and whatever. And, you know, the novel goes on. And Well, what does he very, do in the town? Well, you know, I don't know because I, <laughs> I didn't get to the end of the novel. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I just remember loving the idea of this novel and loving Middle Passage and thinking that, you know, so I, I, I spent some time with it. But I, I don't I can't answer your question, John. Uh, but anyway, I, I just wanted to say the flight of imagination that Charles Johnson, the novelist, engages in is is kind of premised on this ordinary man who gets, in effect, recruited into an absolutely extraordinary world historic role. And the, the juxtaposition between those things, the life of a real man. I mean, we know that he had feet of clay. Major feet of clay. We, yeah. we we know he was a human being, flawed and and you know susceptible to all that is human is not alien to him. They not alien to that brother. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nothing human is alien to me. Isn't that the, the saying? <laughs> but in any case, uh, uh, Johnson allows us to see the juxtaposition between a real human being and this thing, which became this entity, which became Martin Luther King Jr. You know, um. There's a show that we're going to be doing in about four years, which is that, you know this, that in 2027, certain tapes can be played that Hoover oh. did of him. And apparently there's a tape of him and some of his comrades essentially um, gang raping a woman. I've heard and, that rumor. And, you know, on the one hand, Hoover and the gang like to make stuff up. But on the other hand, if it turns out that there's anything like that on the tape, I wonder if a certain mob mentality in this country is going to learn a lesson to stretch the metaphor. Because suppose that's true. 
there's no way we're going to throw King under the bus. Even if that happened one night, and even if it suggests that it was something he regularly did, God, I hope it doesn't. But if it did, because if you know about his feet of clay and the fact that it was a different time, it's not impossible. If that happened, nobody is going to decide that we have to take down statues of Martin Luther King. Everybody is going to have to understand that you have to see people in their entirety and that some of the things that they did wouldn't pass today or, you know, wouldn't have passed then. But that we have to think about the whole issue. We have to think about the whole person. It would almost be, I'm not trying to use the man's life, but it would almost be useful if that turned out to be the case. Because once people understood it about King, it might be easier for people to understand it about Thomas Jefferson and about all these other people. And that doesn't mean that everybody deserves rehabilitation. I understand taking down a statue of Robert E. Lee. I agree with taking Woodrow Wilson's name off of things. But it gets taken way too far. And King would be a real lesson in that, you know? I, I, I actually don't uh, don't agree with uh, either no. taking down Robert Lee Lee's statue or taking down... I don't know if uh, we ever talked about that. Wilson School. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think you contextualize it, uh, but you don't try to efface uh, what was actual history. Are you honoring... Robert E. Lee, yeah, kind of you are if you have a statue of Robert E. Lee. It, but it's been there since, okay, we can get into the history of the statue. And who was Robert E. Lee? He was leading the Army of the Confederacy. They were fighting to preserve the uh, secession, and it was a slavery thing. You know, what were his views about slavery? They were probably not as bad as some would say, but not anything for, fit for polite company. But I and think, it the you main know, it's thing uh, that he did. Like, what else about him do we care about? Is his name? Well, well, I mean, I I don't want to try to get into a defense of Robert E. Lee here. I I just want to say, let bygones be bygones. And uh, since we are of varied opinions, we Americans, about the uh, way in which we're going to narrate and interpret this uh, history, um, you know... The offense to sensibility of some, and it gets into a tug of war about whose sensibilities are are most uh, significant. I think there can be a lot of virtue signaling in it. I, I don't know. I, well, Glenn, how about this? Uh, this was um, Char- I mean, we should say, I mean, shouldn't we? That this was Charlottesville. This was the issue. When Trump said there were good people on both sides, what they were on both sides of was taking down the statue. Was it Robert E. Lee? I believe it was. And uh, what I just got through saying was, <laughs> hey, there were good people on both sides in so many words. And to make a federal case out of this and to force it to a, a hit, is, is that progress? Uh, you know, what do you, what do you, I, I don't know. What do you say yeah. to, I was on an M- MSNBC show way back, afternoon show. I didn't have much to do that afternoon, and so I was on a panel. And um, one of the other people on the panel was uh, a a, a black writer, thinker, who um, grew up in the South. I can can name her, Brittany Cooper. She writes for Salon, I think. And, you know, she's a name. And she was saying that, you know, growing up in the South and, you know, walking by, driving by those statues was disturbing. The implication was I grew up in Philadelphia. I didn't really know how it felt. And 
if you're in the South and you're actually growing up around those things all the time, it's, it's disturbing. Would you tell Brittany Cooper, get over it? I, w- I was not inclined to, to, to do that. No, I mean, I'm not going to try to tell her what to feel. Although you have said yourself, maybe not about a case like not wanting to see a Confederate statue, but about other, you know, the rock called uh, nigger rock. Wasn't oh, they that need the, to get over the that problem. Yeah. You know, yeah, that was you just said a- people should see cognitive therapy. Didn't you? What do you call it? Cognitive, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy. <laughs> but that had, it had only been called that one time in one newspaper article in 1925. So, yeah, those people need to get over it. Without no, I don't think they but I'm but I'm saying we don't have to make a big issue out of it. We can live and let live. I'm, and I, you know, I, I if there were white supremacists rallying around saying we want the Confederacy brought back kind of politics around a statue, then, yeah, the statue's been there for 100 years. I don't know, uh, 130 years or whatever it is. Um, and, and then we, and, and likewise with Woodrow Wilson, who was president of the United States for eight years, who was president of Princeton University. He helped to build that university, who, who was uh, a major uh, influence on uh, international relations and, and international politics uh, with the League of Nations and all of that as w- one of his babies and the, U.S. entry into the First World War and all that. And it was also a Southern segregationist. He was he was a guy that wanted blacks not to have positions in the federal government. He was a quote unquote, he was a racist. Now, he was. Okay, he was also president of the United States and president of Princeton University at one time, and they had a racist as their president. He didn't just ascend by fiat to these positions. He was elected and appointed. Boards of trustees had to confirm. It was endorsed by the entire system. He was a very intelligent and effective man. Yes. I just read Reza Eslan, you know, the Iranian writer, Reza Eslan, Eslan, A-S-L-A-N. Yeah, the the Jesus book. His new book is called uh, uh, American Martyr in Persia. The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Now, Howard Baskerville was a Presbyterian missionary, an American who traveled to Persia, to the city of Tabriz in what is now Iran, uh, in order to spread the gospel according to Jesus Christ to the heathens. He was educated at Princeton when Woodrow Wilson was president and, in fact, took a class with Woodrow Wilson, who wrote a letter of recommendation to the Presbyterian Missionary Board to, you know, endorse Howard Baskerville's ambition to travel halfway around the world to spread the word of God according to civilization. And of course, it's white civilization. I mean, the year is 1907. Oh, he, 1907. no question, right. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. I recommend it to everybody, the book, uh, American Martyr in Persia, because uh, Baskerville gets caught up in the... Uh, revolution that's going on in Persia where they're trying to get the Shah a hereditary royal line to allow for a a parliament that would be independent and elected by the people to have a voice in the government of the country. And the Shah is resisting that and there's conflict. I want to understand that. I want to understand what was the world of Presbyterian mission thinking in America in 1907. Woodrow Wilson figures very prominently in that and so does Princeton University. It's a part of our history. 
I don't see a direct connection between Baskerville and race. I have no idea what he thought about it, but I'm almost certain it would be unacceptable in our present day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was a disciple of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, there's just something to me that it's like we, we progress in our thinking about issues by over a century and then retroactively, we take the moral sensibility that has been evolved from point A in 1907 to point B in 2023, and we use it to judge the actions of the person at point A who didn't have the benefit of hindsight. And, and it just feels performative. It feels too easy. It's way too easy. It's much easier to just put a label. We'd slap the hood on him. We put it, we called him a Klansman and we wrote him out of the narrative rather than to reckon with the fact that he is at the center of the narrative. Because as I said, he really is just the culmination of a whole large number of forces. I mean, he didn't ascend uh, autonomously. He, he, was, he was the leading edge of a deep structure of sentiment and, and uh, sensibility. So, I, you know. We're, patting our, we're so busy patting ourselves on the back because we got rid of the Woodrow Wilson label. Whereas the endowment, what, what is Princeton University? Let's just talk about it for a minute. Where, did, where the fuck do you all think the money is coming from? How do you think the people got the money? Okay, it's American empire. It's Wall Street. It's the Dulles brothers. No, they were Yale, not Princeton. But do you see what I'm getting at? You know, please, you're so fastidious. You're so righteous because you can take a name off of a building. You're still going in the building. You're still benefiting from the uh, droppings from the table of empire. And by the way, it's cheap grace. Much easier to change the name on a building than it is to actually do something. I want to tell you about AG1, a terrific product. It's the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I'm telling you, I drink it literally every day. I'm concerned about my health and I know that nutrition is a key factor in maintaining it. As a man of a certain age, this is not something I can afford to neglect. So I have made AG1 a part of my daily routine and I think it's doing wonders for me. I'm giving my body the nutrition that it craves and I'm covering my nutritional basis. It's hard to keep up with a supplement routine that comes with a bunch of different products. Since I've been drinking AG1, I've noticed an overall feeling of healthiness and I love it. Why take a bunch of different things when you can just mix one scoop of powder in water once a day? AG1 was designed with ease of use in mind so that you can live healthier and better without having to complicate your routine. Every scoop is packed with 75 different vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients of high quality. And these things give me major benefits like gut and mood support. They boost my level of energy. I even get a healthier looking skin, hair, and nails benefit from it. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1. 
and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to ag1.com slash Glenn. That's ag1.com slash Glenn. Check it out. I agree with you 100%, except for a few people. (laughs) The the lesson is that um, I think sane people can differ on points, and I think it can be extended to other things. And I think this one is of limited import. Like with Wilson, yes, you know, all of this is true, and he wasn't as exclusively a racist, and that's the only thing he's interesting about in the way that Robert E. Lee fought to keep yours and my ancestors in chains. But, you know, with Wilson, and opinions will differ. Yes, definitely. I'm not using enough imagination imagining the whole man because he was racist even for a Southerner of his time, and he was educated. And so if you take all the presidents around him, let's go back to, okay, Grover Cleveland, William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt. Nobody called him Teddy at the time. Um, yeah, William Howard William Howard Taft, yeah. Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover. Those are the presidents around him. And then take Wilson. Wilson is the one who hated the N-I-G-G-E-R-S. Like all the other ones, you know, you know what they thought of black people. He hated black people to the point of segregating a D.C. that was not segregated to remotely that point, the government, before he came in practically yelling at the black officials who came into his office to do some bargaining. You know, this, this person hated us. That's what strikes me about him. Like William Howard Taft would not have wanted one of his children to marry a black person. Although oddly enough, my sister dated briefly his great grandson. So there you go. William Howard Taft, but we got that one. Yeah. (laughs) William Howard Taft would have felt, but you know, who cares? That's what every white person felt then. But Wilson was an extreme. You don't think it matters? No, I, I I take the point, and after a certain point, I accept. I accept that the school at at uh, Princeton has been renamed. I forget. I think they just call it School of Public Policy. I'm not sure it has a name. Maybe there's there's a naming opportunity out there for Jeff Bezos or somebody <laughs> who wants to pony up a uh, 500 million dollars. But uh, I I don't know. It's not uh, a cut and dried case. Yeah, and and I have to ask myself sometimes why am I so quick to the contrarian position? This has come up in conversation with you before, John. You say you don't want to just be a contrarian for contrarian's sake. No. You wouldn't stand to thwart history if certain things were going to happen just because anti-racism people want them to happen. And I and I may suffer a little bit from the disease of, you know, if my enemy, quote unquote enemy, because these people are not really my enemies. I'm just construing them as such. Want something, I have to be against it. So they want to take the statue down, I have to be against it. <laughs> you know? They want reparations, I have to be against have it. Agree. Wrong people want, if only the right people would want reparations, I would have an open mind, you know, this kind of thing. And I have to watch that. I know that I'm, I know that I'm susceptible. But I'm going to say this, John. I think that Clarence Thomas name should be on public school buildings somewhere in America. Uh, I went to I went to the John Marshall Harlan High School, n- named after the dis- lone dissenter in the uh, Plessy v. Ferguson case. And when uh, why? What I was for, for what what is 
what would be the justification for that now? Maybe later, but now. Well, I mean, I know it's not going to happen now. And now with the, all the intense scrutiny, both of Justice Thomas personally, but also of the court, and at this moment where the conservative majority on the court is overturning things, the affirmative action decision is coming, John Brasher. So uh, I realize how contentious it is what I just said. I realize how, how that sounds. Uh, why? Uh, because he's earned that honor. And, and because it is a tribute to the legacy of we African-Americans. And uh, if you were going to put Ruth Bader Ginsburg's name on a school, or you were going to put uh, 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 the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember the name of the former chief justice. Rehnquist. Of this, yeah, Rehnquist. If you were going to put Rehnquist or, or Sandra Day O'Connor's name on a school, little kids are going. Uh, this is until uh, Katanji Brown Jackson was appointed the only African-American on the court. He served for decades at the top of American government. He's conservative. I understand he's conservative. Uh, you honor him and, and you honor the uh, world that made him. Uh, in the case at hand, that's Gullah Geechee, that's uh, Savannah, that's Holy Cross. Uh, he's a Catholic. There's nothing wrong with being a Catholic. He's black. He's a conservative. He's a black man. Uh, uh, when is there a life really Rehnquist school? Are they named? I don't know. I, I don't know that. We should we could look that up. That's going to be part of my answer. Go, go ahead. I mean, of course, name on a school is just a concrete illustration of the larger principle that I think he's due the honor and respect of someone who has served at the top of American government for 30 years. And it shouldn't be withheld because of Anita Hill. And it shouldn't be withheld because of uh, his, uh, uh, you know, strict constructionist, original understanding, uh, judicial philosophy. These are arguable questions. A lot of people have those views. Uh, and the fact that he's black and that a lot of people like my friend Randall Kennedy at the Harvard Law School are mad at him because he's not Thurgood Marshall's, you know, heir. Uh, Randall Kennedy despises shouldn't, shouldn't yeah he despises him he he and I Randy and I were both asked by Frontline the documentary series at PBS to offer commentary for a two hour uh, doc documentary that they did on uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife Jenny Thomas uh, in depth exploration of their lives uh, both as uh, coming up and then as uh, marital partners. And they go through all of this and, you know, the documentary is interspersed with commentary from a number of talking heads. I'm one of them. Randy is one of them. And I'm, I'm saying stuff like, uh, I'm not saying what I just said, because I'm not asked my opinion about whether Justice Thomas is due a sufficient honor. But I did know, do know Justice Thomas. I have a history with him. We first met at the Wharton School uh, public of uh, uh, business at the University of Pennsylvania at a conference in 1982 or 83. And, and I've known him ever since. Um, and I could count him as a, a friend uh, in a way. We were two in a world of black conservative thinkers back in the 1980s and the 1990s coming along. And, and I had some common ground on, on a number of different issues. And collaborated on some things and uh it just 
let me put it this way. So when uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh was being, con- his nomination was being contested, Matthew Dowd, who is a broadcaster and a talking head news guy for, I think it's CBS, said on the air, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, we will now have two sexual predators on the Supreme Court. That turned my stomach. It, it simply, it, the justice is a sexual predator. I'm talking about Thomas because of the Anita Hill. 30 years on, three decades on, uh, a uh, broadcaster for a major news organization feels without repercussion that they can characterize this gentleman in that way. I, I take personal exception. I, to me, that's, I almost want to say racist, except I'll sound like one of these woke anti-racist people that you're, you're skewering all the time, because it sounds a little bit hysterical. Uh, but that this black man is besmirched in perpetuity because of allegations of sexual impropriety where he didn't even touch anybody, even if you believe every accusation against him was true. And now he's a pervert. What does uh, Abramson and Meyer and Mayer call their book? Strange justice. The, 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 you know, so I want to counter this vilification, this demonization, this denigration, this character assassination of somebody, because why? Because the objective record of facts warrants it? No. Because he's politically uh, obstreperous. Because he thinks what he thinks for himself and his skin is black. And that is absolutely home ground for me. I'm black. And I actually am a neoliberal economist. I like the market. I like capitalism. I think working hard is the key to success in life. And I think this great country, and I could go on, you can finish the monologue on that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it and I'm black. Now, you're going to call me a name and and put me in a a box of freakdom and self-hating whatever? That's one of the reasons why I had Norman Finkelstein on my program. Because I hate that. That idea that you would diminish the value of a person because they think for themselves. When you can't necessarily rebut or refute what they're saying, you just happen to have a different view. Perfectly reasonable to be a black conservative jurist in this country. The history of black people does not tell us what the Constitution means. It's relevant. But it doesn't tell me what to think about the great questions of constitutional interpretation. So that's why. One of the hardest things about the race conversation in this country is the tacit and the tacit part is part of what makes it hard. The tacit idea that when it comes to thinking about race, you're not supposed to think too much. And instead, your feelings are supposed to take precedence. That's a subtle aspect of what's thought to be educated about thinking about race. When you think about race, you're supposed to dumb it down. And so certainly that means that it's not just that people think Clarence Thomas is thinking for himself. If I may, that's a little coy. It's not that people don't like that he's thinking for himself. It's that they think that his views are anti-black. But if asked to actually sit down and spell out how his views are anti-black, except in some very signposty, visceral way, 
most of those people would wind up on the rocks. It's just that he thinks differently. But when it comes to race, we're supposed to think in shorthand. And yes, that is um, repulsive. That is definitely repulsive. It's hard talking about Clarence Thomas for a million reasons. I have met him a couple of times myself. Um, no, there's what he did is not sexual predation in any sense. And I do believe that those things happen between him and Anita Hill, but to call him a sexual predator, no, that's uh, that's ridiculous. My only issue here with putting his name on a building or even the equivalent is just that the longevity is one thing, but it seems to me that Marshall gets to be on buildings and things because of what he had done before he was on the Supreme Court, and then he ends up there. So it's his work with the NAACP and Brown v. Board, and he winds up on a building. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I presume, is on buildings, and it would be for similar reasons that she was a particular pioneer in a particular kind of legislation. There's a story. Whereas with Thomas, the idea that he's been just this dumb judge is wrong. That is that is quite wrong. He He is doing his job. But I'm not aware that there is a signature school of thought, except for originalism, and it's Scalia, whose name is really on that. What would he More be so. on the building for at this point? Well, service to the country over a long period of time and influence on American law. I mean, his clerks are everywhere, and, and he has written these opinions. I'm not an expert. I think there's a distinction to be drawn between um, Scalia and Thomas and Thomas is to Scalia's right to some degree, as I understand it, on some of these issues. Uh, I mean, he represents a very old school kind of, uh, you know, Robert Bork is another uh, forebearer of this way of thinking about the Constitution, uh, which, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, raises these questions that we think are resolved about the New Deal and, you know, the appropriate role of federal regulations and things of this kind. And uh, you know, uh, so no, he's not Thurgood Marshall in being an historic figure factoring into, in this case, the civil rights movement and the great legislative transformation, legislative and judicial transformation that occurred between the World War II and, and 1970, where for Thurgood Marshall is a major figure in American history before he even ascends to the court. And he's not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and these are, cases are all different from each other. Uh, but he does not have that same degree of of uh, uh, right. accomplishment uh, independent of his court. And I don't think that he, whatever credit we might give to his intellectual innovation in jurisprudence, that it's going to be up there with some of the great, uh, you know, historic uh, uh, Supreme Court justices whose uh, doctrines we we. Uh, Revere, uh, he's he's been a yeoman contributor to the country in that position, and he's I, I agree with you. He's not a dummy. He's not someone who is hiding uh, from the limelight uh, by not speaking in uh, oral argument because he doesn't know what he's talking about. I, I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and he's been there for thirty years, and he's been doing his job for thirty years, and there are plenty of people who uh, have been positively influenced by him uh, in their judicial legal careers, uh, his uh, performance of his job on the day. I'm just saying, a black man made good in America, real good. I take your point. And our kids, including our black kids, the ones who go to the uh, Museum of African-American History and Culture on the Mall in Washington, D.C. and every place else, 
ought to have that held up to them. And I really think it's important to underscore that, um, you know, my blackness doesn't dictate what my correct position is supposed to be on, you know, the federal income tax uh, or the Environmental Protection Agency's regulations or, or, uh, or the voting rights. affirmative action or the earned income tax credit or reparations or things having to do with black people, too. Correct. Or how to fight crime in the cities and what to do about the police or whether or not to have a workfare program to encourage people to be reliant, self-reliant. But a lot of people who have strong left of center views on those issues think that they speak for black people. A lot of black people think that they speak for black people to court. Yes. When they when they pronounce. All right, John, uh, we put in our due uh, hour of conversation here. At the Glenn Show and have given red meat for Bubba. The, mm-hmm. <laughs> those uh, detractors uh, out there will have something to work with. But I thank you. I thank you once again, John, for uh, an interesting conversation. Of course, we will do it again very soon. All right. Take care.